Welcome to Piecing It All Together. Hey, I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. We're piecing it all together with you today. Uh, We've got a book out called Decolonizing Evangelicalism. Our podcast here is uh, piecingitalltogether.com. And we want you to be a part of this big conversation with us. So join us this morning, will you? Yeah. And we want to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible. We recently had to renew our hosting fees. And so we are grateful for your support and helping us host this conversation and be on the journey with us here. Yes and amen. Randy, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. I'm 64 years old this morning. How does that feel? Kind of old. <laughs> I know that there was a time in your life where you may not have expected to live to 64. You know, you know when you're a young person, you don't ever think about these things. But but my dad, uh, who I got a birthday card from my mother and father, and and uh, uh, in my in my dad's card, my my dad is 94 and my mother is. 64. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's change that. Hey, yeah, guys. Yeah. My, my dad is 94. My mother's 92. And uh, my dad writes in the card, I remember when I was 64. And so that kind of helped put it in perspective, right? He's oh. like, you know, 30 years ago, he was 64. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. You know, my dad's dad died uh, my dad was just 15 at the time. He died. He, he was 51. And that's always been a number in my head because uh, Sanders men don't tend to live that long. So I've always had that number in my head and I'm just four years away from that. So I, I have this weird sort of imagined number in the back of my head. Yeah. And it's crazy because, you know, I mean, we, my, my Edith and I, we study um, the blue zones, you know, and we, we try to find good stuff from the diets of the Blue Zones. Blue Zones are those places that were centenarians, the largest concentration of centenarians in the world. Yeah. Like Okinawa, um, Loma Linda, California, where the Seventh-day Adventist are is another yeah. spot. Uh, it's the only one in America, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, to try and uh, what, what does it take to live longer? And so... You know, you, I've seen people, 100-year-old people interviewed in editorials and things, and they'll say things like, well, you, you eat an onion every day, or <laughs> you, you know, have a bourbon every morning, or, you know, things like that. Another one I remember said, don't hurry and don't worry. But, uh, you know, my, my dad was a hard worker, but did not – now, my mom's always been a health food person, right? She's 92. But my dad uh, was definitely not a health food eater. Uh, you know, cheated all the time, ate the normal Southern fare with lots of grease and, <laughs> and the fried stuff. And, and uh, now he has had a triple bypass. He's diabetic. He's got high blood pressure. And I've got a lot of those same things. But, um, but, but still, you know, doing well. My grandfather, his dad, lived to be 91. And he had a stroke at 91, but uh, my dad said, well, I wanted to outlive him and I've done that. So, wow. Um, so anyway, we just kind of never know if it's in the genes, that's a great thing, but we still, someone said, uh, uh, you know, genetics and this, a gun analogy, just to warn you, genetics uh, loads the gun, but uh, lifestyle pulls the trigger. So I think it's all about your diet and your lifestyle and all that sort of thing. That's intense. 
you know, to get at least another 30 years out of this. We'll see. Good, 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 good. You start changing your attitudes when you get older, I, I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, and, you know, I've thought about this because uh, not only am I, you know, just getting older chronologically, but I look and I've got more wrinkles in my skin and I've got more, uh, it's, you know, starting to sound like the 4th of July when I get out of bed in the morning, pop, 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 you know, and, uh, uh, you know, a sort of more medicines that you end up being on and all those kinds of things. And so, it's uh, it really is an aging process. More more gray hairs, of course, and uh, it's getting out of where I'm more gray than anything else. And uh, so, it, so there's this getting old part with your body and facing that and all that sort of thing. But uh, I think you know, in the mind, things start getting clearer. At least hmm. for me, they have. Um, things have come into focus more. Uh, my understandings. Um, are, I think, becoming uh, better. And, uh, you know, I told someone the other day, um, I think when you get older, you start asking better questions. And so hopefully, hopefully that's happening. Hmm. Thank you for the birthday wish. Appreciate yeah. That. You know, one of my favorite sayings is um, they say with age comes wisdom, but sometimes age just shows up by itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That may be the case with me too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that you are uh, sensing some clarity and some um, some wisdom in uh, in celebrating today. That's a good to hear. You unfortunately aren't getting today off, though. You have a lot going on over at the farm. Oh my goodness! Yeah, we ran out of water uh, about a week ago. Our well stopped producing, and we've got a you know, we're hauling water and we've got to uh, drill another well. So who would have thought that, you know, only three months after moving to your oh. new property that you'd have to put in another well. We planted like 35 trees and we've got 10 raised beds going for our seeds and our food. And yeah, and because uh, we have our seed company, Alehi Seeds. And uh, and right now, everything's sort of in peril. We're having to watch the amount of water that we use every day. And, you know, um, I won't get into the details of all that, but uh, oh. uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a different, it's kind of like glamping. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So you have a fundraiser, though, going on. If people want to give towards you getting a new well, um, there's a lot of ways they can do that. Can I list some? Yeah. So uh, we, we had the fundraiser and then um, Edith put out a, uh, a little surprise uh, birthday uh, thing to try and get people to give toward this as a, uh, I guess, to honor my birthday. And, and, uh, and so that was kind of a nice surprise. She put out one of our newsletters. I didn't know. And, um, and I think in that she lists everything, but, but people can, if they don't get this, they can go to her Facebook page. And I think we're going to, I'm going to be able to put it up on mine today sometime. Okay. Um, but, well, uh, yeah, go ahead and, and list yeah, some me, of those ways for people to give, because, you know, we, we, you know, th this place is not just for us either. I mean, yeah, we're, we're in an emergency situation. We need water, but basically we're building this place as a teaching learning yeah. center, healing center. Yeah. So, um, but we need, we need to, to have water to make that happen. Yeah. So if people and, want and to, everything that's given to us is, 
it goes to Ayla Hay, right, to our organization, Ayla Hay Eagles Wings, uh, for the, you know, Ayla Hay Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Ayla Hay Farm. But um, it's all tax deductible. So, you know, oh, if people want to give, everything's tax deductible. So, Well, that's really going to be helpful if people want to support the community that you're building out there. For those of you who use PayPal, it's alahay at gmail.com. And we can include this in the show notes as well. There's also a GoFundMe at Resurrect Ayla Hay. We can link to that. Uh, if you want to donate directly, it's randywoodley.com backslash donations.html. There's also the Facebook campaign that he mentioned. And there's also a Patreon option uh, at patreon.com slash randywoodley. So uh, lots of options there for online giving. And of course, people can always mail uh, checks to you and we'll include the physical address for snail mail. Uh, if people want to do that. And there's a Venmo, I think, too, right? I haven't seen the Venmo. Yeah, so Venmo. Um, oh, um, you're right. I see it now. It's Alahay-Eagleswings. Eagles wing, singular. Okay, yeah. so we'll link you to that. So many letters in there, Yes. Yeah, yeah they, they only allow you so many letters. But... Um, yeah, it's, it seems like most people these days, interesting enough, as we're watching this this happen, are uh, giving through Venmo or PayPal. That seems to be the two uh, oh. most popular categories. So Very um, interesting. Yeah. And, um, and, and by the way, uh, according to um, what we've sort of figured out this morning, um, we're over halfway there. Oh, my gosh. So, that's awesome. Yeah, the, the Facebook only shows you what comes in through Facebook. Oh. And um, and I tried to update it this morning, but it, it, for some reason it won't let me edit it to say, say yeah. those things. So um, I, I figured whatever's shown in pay- Facebook, it's at least double that because more yeah. money's coming in the other way. So I think we're just above 10,000 right now. So we're over halfway. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah, it'd be wonderful to get that to, because it's going to take time to – you know, to uh, schedule that drilling and then to hook it all up and hook it into the system and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're talking probably a month or more out, even if we st- ordered it now. We can't order it until we have the money because we don't have the money. So in the meantime, we're, we're going to be hauling water for the rest of the summer, it looks like. So, All right. Um, I also saw in that newsletter that Edith sent out that uh, you have a learning cohort that if people want to connect with you in sort of a deeper, more intentional way about decolonizing and indigenizing your justice work, that they can do that. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I'm going to say that. And then I'm going to tell you about another one that we just sort of uh, came up with uh, uh, yesterday. So um, we're trying to, just like at Peace and All Together, we're trying to draw people into a community, not just sort of like a, a hit and run yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the days of, you know, where like conference speaking and those things are over and people just come out and be a part of on the land, what we're all about here for a couple of days and, you know, that sort of thing. That's the whole vision of Ayla Hay. But in the meantime, I've been having uh, from several different places, people say, you know, why don't you do a learning cohort? And I'm like, you know. Okay, tell me about that. And so for a long time, and because usually, you know, because I know there are people who are doing this. Christina Cleveland does it. Um, oh. Lisa Sharon Harper does it. 
Oh. Um, uh, Hackett has one liberated together. There's a number of, and, and this is sort of what people are doing these days. Okay. Not, I, not just because of COVID, but, but also it makes it more convenient that we have a learning cohort that, that meets together like once a month or twice a month. And for so many months, excuse me. So, um, so people have been saying, you know, do one. And I'm like, you know, I've hesitated because I don't, I never want to be part of a gimmick. Right. That in, in cross ethical boundaries that, you know, so I'm, so what I said was if you can figure out a way to make it worth our while um, so that we can, you know, the people who can afford it can pay the price to do that. Maybe like a nine month cohort. Okay. And, but, but also have some slots for people who don't have the ability to pay Then I'm willing to do it. And so, so I have friends who've been working on that sort of uh, formula um, so that, so that everybody at least can get a, a chance, you know, okay. to do it. And it'll probably be a cohort of maybe about 15 people. Um, and so we're going to do a nine month journey together. It looks like, uh, and, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but basically be centered around everything we've been centered around for the last 33 years, which is decolonizing and indigenizing. Right. So, um, so there's that now this is just in the formulation stages, but there's going to be another cohort for women and that cohort is going to have three badass indigenous grandmas <laughs> who are going to take them on a, a six or eight week learning journey. And so, uh, so we've got uh, Lenore Three Stars, uh, Dakota, um, Edith, um, uh, my wife, Eastern Shoshone, and uh, one other person who I guess hasn't been asked yet. So we've who's on our board, um, and there these three women are going to take uh, a group of, you know, maybe like 20 women on a six or eight week journey. And it's going to be something like indigenizing with badass grandmas, <laughs> indigenizing <laughs> with badass indigenous grandmas or something like that. So, so we'll be watching for that to, in our newsletter and, and on Facebook. Oh, wow. That sounds fun. Yeah. I'm glad to see that. That is going to be a rare opportunity. That'll be memorable. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's nothing more powerful than badass indigenous grandmas. <laughs> well, I know that we're not going to record for a really long time today, but uh, I did want to ask you a question just about the moment that we live in, especially uh, because it's your birthday and I know you're a little bit reflective today. And so I thought it'd be a good day to, to ask you about this. When I studied with you, one of the things that I've always, it impacted me so much was the story about the American Indian movement and how it occupied Alcatraz from 69 to 71, you know, 18 or 19 months. And I always thought how weird it was that there was this moment in the civil rights movement, in the American Indian movement in the late 60s, from 68 to, say, 72, where um, there, was, there, was, it, there was this live moment where things were really changing and things, there was an intensity around it. And how by the 80s and 90s and uh, the time that I come around, how things had become so muted and sort of stagnant and uh, loss of momentum seemingly. 
But we have certainly rounded a corner in 2020 to a very live moment where between Black Lives protests, statues coming down, the NFL team in Washington is going to change its racist uh, nickname. So many things are happening. And I, I, just, I just got thinking that, you know, from 68, so that's like 52 years um, and now we're back to this moment of incredible change and protest. And I just thought I'd like to ask you about uh, what you're seeing, both in the news and in your networks, and just about how we've returned to this live moment where things are actually changing. Yeah. So uh, we, we did reflect on this, uh, oh, maybe, I don't know, six, eight programs ago, but um, uh, that the fact that it's taken you know two whole generations for things to really get to this point, but I think you're right. You're pinpointing 1968, which I think was a pivotal year for a whole lot of reasons. Um, it, and and I remember those years. Uh, so um, Vietnam was the center of everything. You can't separate that from Vietnam. Then there was a 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago and uh, everything that that stirred. And so basically what you had was, um, and I don't even like to characterize this as left and right. I just want to say that there are conservative and progressive people. Okay. And, and I think they could be in different camps, but you had progressive people saying we've had enough injustice and we want to do something about it. And conservative people say, no, we like things the way they are, the system, the way it is. And so, so we saw uh, the spillover of the uh, 68 Democratic Convention. We saw uh, riots uh, begin to happen in, in, in uh, cities around the United States. We saw um, just a lot of what we would call civil unrest, which is a reaction to um, I would call it fascism um, that was has always been present in our system. So it, it's not always been done by dictators, but it has been uh, the, the, the interesting thing about the American fascism is that it is so ubiquitous throughout the system that you don't need a dictator to make it happen. You just need to keep the laws in place. Oh, wow. And so that fascism has always been there. Um, um, putting down uh, people of color, black and brown people, uh, poor people, uh, um, uh, independent thinking women, um, you know, and women in general, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, gay folks um, just it's, and so to keep the civil, this, the, this, keep this, this, the civility um, you have to say, I am for, a sort of fascist. Now, what happened was that over those last 40 years or so, uh, we had, uh, for the first time, um, we had a lot of gains and different laws and things that were beginning to, to, to fight in, you know, bite into that. And then we had an election of, of Obama, our first black president. And then immediately we saw, you know, the reaction of the conservative folks. Mm -hmm. And the conservative people said, this has gone too far. If you notice, historically, every single time that black people, and I, and I use black folks as the example because they're the largest um, uh, group of people of color 
uh, or at least have been uh, up till recently. Yeah. And um, and there's experience is probably more unified in some ways. And now Native Americans, you know, that's a whole different subject. But there's just never been enough of us to really make a difference, right? Mm. But um, so, but when black people gain anything in this country, white people react because the system is set up as a white fascist uh, government. And so, so the system once uh, began to erode and a black president uh, took office and began to making changes. Now, I would call him a, uh, at least a, a moderately conservative black president. I mean, he's not the black president I wanted, but I was happy to see any person except for an old gray haired white man in, in the office. Right. So, so Obama, you know, I love Obama. Um, uh, there, there was much about him to love, but there are also a lot of policies in which I have, you know, uh, stringent issues uh, against, but um, so so they reacted, and the reaction was exactly Donald Trump, because what they said is, if we're, you know, this is all subconscious in a lot of ways. Now, some people are architects and designers of this system, by the way. Um, but if we're going to have a black president elected, who knows what could happen next? The whole system may fall. So we've got to elect a fascist to lead the the um, uh, the parts of fascism that are left in our government and regain our fascist uh, stance. And so um, that's exactly who Donald Trump is. I've said it from the very beginning. Four years ago, I was calling him a fascist. I predicted, uh, you know, watch, he's going to uh, take over the media. Um, and so he did that by calling the fake news. Uh, he's going to privatize a military, and that's basically what he's done. He said that the police and the, you know, the military on his side, he has control of them. And now we're seeing federal troops used in Portland and other places are starting to happen. Um, uh, he's done all the classic things that a fascist dictator does. And the United States of America, who always, who my dad was in World War II and he fought against fascism. Yeah. But somehow they have, uh, have been uh, bewildered and uh, bamboozled into believing that their support of a fascist uh, is somehow American, right? Well, and in fact, it is American, but there's a part of America that is fascist, and there's a part that's very liberative and great ideas and grand ideas that we need to live up to. And so what we're really fighting, uh, uh, the fight is about, there's a war right now for the soul of America. Yeah. And the soul of America is either going to be free or it's going to be fascist, where people of color and other um, uh, more marginalized people groups are not really welcome and are going to continue to be second-class citizens. And that's kind of the, the gist of my perspective. Wow. So I just want to clarify, you've used this word, the F word, fascist, uh, several times. I just want to clarify, for those who don't know the word, maybe they're, they're uninitiated to this critique, um, originally it meant the centralization of power putting it all in a, in a tight. And so it's Italian in its origins with Mussolini and it's collecting the, the centralizing the different uh, authorities and powers into one place. And so whether that's military and economy and political and uh, maybe even religious all centered in one place. And that's the concern with fascism. Well, in the, the see, now we have an interesting thing going on here. We're not classic fascism like under Mussolini, right? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, this this is where Trump's, you know, basically taking his cues from are some of the fascist dictators around the world. So like, there's elements of that. But we are actually a corporatocracy. There you go. It is the corporations in America who, who to, to whom the laws have all been built around to, to benefit. Um, the corporation executives are the, you know, the fastest growing, largest uh, millionaires, billionaires. Um, they're where most of the money that's in these aid packages and other things like this, uh, you know, are going to. Um, and, you know, so everything right now in America is pointing to the corporates, uh, mm-hmm. these large corporations as the, 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 the new oligarchs, if you will. Yeah. And so that's what's happening. But it's not happening fast enough. Um, uh, you know, and uh, so so banks and hedge fund managers and people like that are actually the representative of the old oligarchies that, yeah. that you saw in places and you still see in places like Russia. So the rule of the rich. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the first two years of this presidential administration, I really thought that he was an incompetent clown and nothing more than a reactionary backlash. And you kept insisting, this isn't, Bo, this isn't incompetent. This is intentional. And I, and I, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, it's, it's frustrating, but he hasn't done anything truly dangerous yet. Well, in his second year of his administration, you won me over. And I started thinking, this is dangerous stuff. The changes he's making, whether it's the Environmental Protection Agency, whether it's in education, whether it's in housing and urban development, I started saying something, this is starting to get really scary, but there is no way that at the end of 2019, (laughs) I mean, you called it, but that many of us could see that this was going to become truly terrifying. And so here we are. And so I think I just want to say you've won me over. I really am quite scared. Well, in terms of intelligence, he is not very intelligent, right? But what he has going for him is that he has a lifetime as a narcissist and a sociopath of learning how to manipulate. So he's not very smart, but he's a but he's an excellent manipulator, right? And then you, you, you combine that with some people who do have some intelligence, like, uh, you know, Stephen Miller yeah. and Steve Banyan and people like that, sort of his intelligentsia, if you will, who have the most influence with him. And, and then you're able to systematically strip the State Department, strip the, um, you know, the, uh, the FBI and, and the uh, police departments and, you know, all the uh, the judicials and all you're able to, it's these guys who have the sort of the grand plan, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, but, but Trump is basically, um, they know how to keep him happy and to satisfy his narcissistic longings. And so, uh, and then in his whole thing is how do I get more power? Right. And more wealth. Of course, it's all about, you know, there was a great quote someone made the other day and I, I Facebooked it. And it said basically that, uh, you know, this is not a government. This is a crime family posing as a government, right? And so um, you have this large crime family, the Trumps, who are posing as a government. Um, and the more power is the more money. And then, uh, there, then there are these true believers, right? Trump's not a true believer. Yeah. He, he's just 
selfish enough and right. and narcissistic enough to 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 be used by these true believers like Banyan and Steve Miller. Yeah. And there's probably others that we don't know about. But um and, and those are the guys who are who are systematically going through the whole American system and stripping it of yeah. any kind of a vestiges of democracy. Yeah. In in the old terms when they would critique stuff like this, uh it was called the puppet and the dwarf. <laughs> And I know we don't use those phrases anymore, but that old critique of how ideology functions is still around. And it's the same concept, even if we need to update the language. So we're, we're in a perilous times. We are in perilous times. And Native Americans have always been the canary in the coal mine, right? We have always been the canary in the coal mine. It's like when you see what's happening to us, you see your future. Mm. And so the disease, the poverty, the, you know, all the systemic forces that were uh, logically and well thought through formed against Native America to make us the most disenfranchised people in America. Those are the future for all Americans, except for the very rich. And so we are your future. We are the canary in the coal mine, if you will. Wow. Um, we should probably try and end on somewhat of an optimistic or constructive note. What would you... Oh, are we ending already? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm trying to round the corner. <laughs> no, no, we're not ending already. Um, like if you were to point people in a direction or, um, advocate for them, right. For action, what direction would you point people? We've got to be in the streets. We've got to, um, be doing the legal courses. You can't do one or the other. It's got to be, uh, the voice of the people on the streets and the voice of the people on the ballot box and through legislation, those have to work in tandem together. But we have to have nonviolent protest. Every time someone throws a firecracker or a bottle or anything um, at a, a, a wall of policemen, be they federal or anything else, you're just giving ammunition to Trump's reelection campaign. So, you know, he doesn't care anything about expanding his base. This is not what, what Trump is about. Right. He's not trying to expand his base. He's trying to do something else. He's trying to steal an election and to um, create uh, uh, anarchy, uh, make it look like law and order, but it's actual anarchy. And, um, and so that he can be reelected re- as the, you know, the only savior for the fear that's happening in, in people's lives. So, so this is not um, your normal political election that's coming up. He's going to try and steal it in every single way possible. We have to have people legal action. We have to have injunctions. We have to have uh, people, you know, he's, he's trying to right now strip the post office of uh, its um, by appointing a puppet postmaster general to strip it of all its power. So we can't have election by mail so that he can call it a fraud and then not, you know, uh, you know, uh, accept the results of the election. So this, we have to have more people in the streets, but there has to, we have to have a wave of nonviolence. And, and I think, you know, uh, 99.5% of the people are nonviolent. Right. They're there for nonviolent reasons. And, and it is the federal police and the big blue wall and those that are provoking the violence. If you move them away, there won't be any violence. Right. Right. Um, so, 
so the the problem is uh is that you know there's there's that two percent who are sort of spoiling it for everyone else and so we need to organize uh, more uh, as nonviolence and we also need to um to maintain our own crowds when people start to break things and supply Trump the footage he needs for his reelection campaign, uh, people need to step in and say, that's not cool. Don't do that. Yeah. You're just helping Trump. I've heard a lot of conversation this week about the difference between protests and riots. You might find it interesting. You probably know this, that the Portland police department, their definition of a riot is when six or more people intentionally uh, participate in violence. So that's when a protest rolls over into a riot. And so riots come with criminality. And so mm. when there is violence attached to protests, they roll over into a criminal element and that's where law enforcement gets involved. So that is a, that is a flashpoint right there. It's something to be aware of. So there, there need needs to be um, another sort of uh, group out. Police are, are, their job is to solve crimes. They're not supposed to be an army. There needs to be other people who understand how to constructively solve problems and deal with things and talk to people. Um, And this is why our police force is, you know, so left found wanting because, you know, it's just this one, the stick, you know, that's, that's all they know is the stick. Yeah. You got to have a carrot and a stick to move things along. And so, you know, we need to get much more sophisticated and much smarter uh, with our policing. Yeah, this is why the, the concern right now with the militarization of our police is so deeply concerning. There should be a massive difference between warriors who are trained to kill and peace officers who are or okay. even solving crimes. Like this migration that has happened over the last several decades where police have become militarized and are trained as warriors. This is why it's so deeply concerning is because when you have a hammer, you tend to treat everything like a nail. When you have a gun, when you have a gun, then that's how you solve crime. And so I think it's the target. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, Randy, what something I've always wanted to uh, talk about and um, but it, it, if I had brought it up out of context, it would have seemed like I had an agenda, but now it seems truly uh, appropriate, is I have been concerned for about 10 years with lowering the bar on what we call violence. This is something that has concerned me. When I moved from Portland, where I went to seminary, down to do my doctoral work down in Los Angeles, I went you know, where I went at Claremont down in Los Angeles is a different kind of institution than I had ever been involved in before. I had never been at a place where, uh, where advocacy and uh, protest and critique were, were sort of central. And one of the things that really threw me off when I first arrived was the lowering the bar on violence so that like speech could be violence. And other things now, then silence, white silence could be violence. And I started saying, um, you know, cause I'm, I'm learning, right. I'm a, a co-learner there, but I started saying, I have to say that I don't think this is a good development because historically and presently violence has been body based, whether that's 
stabbing or shooting or choking, right? Assaulting, punching, or even just putting up barriers, physical barriers like checkpoints, uh, that can be a type of violence, um, but it's physical. And so when we lower the bar on violence, there's, it's not that, here's my concern, is if graffiti is violence, and we've lowered the bar so that just that, that act alone can be called violence, even though it's not against anyone's corporeal body, their actual physicality, right? Mm -hmm. Then those who, who participate or have a permission to do actual violence, body violence. So if they, if, if graffiti is called violence and then shooting the person that does the graffiti, right, is a response to violence, then for me, that is a disproportionate response but I just think there's something concerning about whether you call them liberals or progressives or those on the left lowering the, this, this bar for what constitutes violence because those who are not part of that school still have a physical permission for violence. So you don't want for one act to be violent, which is verbal or property-based, and then the other response to it to be physical. I just, there's something disproportionate and out of balance. And it just makes me nervous how we use the word violence right now. Yeah. So of course, property and personhood need to be separated, right? Uh, personhood should always take precedent over property. Properties should not be considered. It's something that can be expanded and rebuilt. People's lives can't be. And I understand, you know, silence is violence, right? Or white silence is white violence. That that's, uh, just happens those two words rhyme, so they make a good <laughs> chant. Um, but, but the point there, of course, is that this is a, a systemic problem. Okay. And if white people don't say anything, then they are agreeing to white normalcy, which is allowing the violence to continue. So, so all of that makes sense, you know, yeah. but it is a, a little bit nuanced. Um, you know, unfortunately, when you're making signs and chanting, nuance doesn't really come across really well. So, yeah, uh, slogans are dangerous that way. Yeah, so, although they're they're important to get points across. Right? Sure. So, um, so, so, yeah, no, you're right. I think in 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 a lot of ways that uh, um, you know, violence is something very specific, and and we need to to care about it, but. Let me just point out what I understand love to be. Love is to prefer your neighbor as you do yourself. The opposite of love, and I think I say this in our book, is, is not hate. You know, when you hate someone, you're, you fuel that with, with passion and emotion, and it's something you got to kind of keep up with, right? So, so, so that's, not the, that's, not what, that, that's something different. The opposite of love, I think, is indifference. And so when we are indifferent to what's happening with our neighbors, um, we are actually uh, um, doing the opposite of love. Mm. Uh, when, when we don't care, when we're superficial with each other, uh, when we, we, we allow structural violence to continue, that's the opposite of love. Mm. Now, how you get that across in a, in a slogan, I don't know. Oh, no, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, 
you know, there's so much debate right now around the slogan defund the police when many of the people who use it mean take half of the police's resources and use them for more constructive solutions and investment in community. But of course you can't fit that on a placard or a sign. So I get it, but, and I, and I have no, I'm not trying to debate slogans. I'm just very concerned that those who are willing to participate in physical violence in defense of things like statues or buildings that it's inappropriate. Right. Yeah. I mean, cause one's an inanimate, one's an inanimate object and the other is a person. Right. But remember, they're not protecting the inanimate object. They're protecting the myth behind it. Mm. And that's, that's the, the, the problem with the system is that the system has all these symbols and myths and that, that people, People are trying to protect uh, because they don't want to see a change. And that is what white supremacy is. Yeah. I just remember the first time I voiced this concern in class, this would have been 2010. So 10 years ago, I said to a friend of mine in my cohort, I said, I don't know. I mean, she, she was from Idaho. She knows about the second amendment crowd and the, and the militia crowd and the white supremacist crowd. And I said, I don't know that we want to say that silence is violence and lower the bar on that because you know as well as I do that there's a crew who will respond to violence with actual literal violence. So one is like symbolic violence or metaphorical or, you know, whatever. And, um, and that's, like you said, more nuanced. But the other is literal and physical. And I just, there's something about it that makes me very nervous that, so like if I have friends who are protesting, right? And they, they don't own guns. They're not Second Amendment folks. And they're using violence one way. But there are people who own guns who will defend the property that they're, let's say, trespassing on with actual violence. And so you're always going to lose in that equation. You're going to lose because one is, is bodily violence and one is like symbolic or ideal violence. And they're not the same. Now now let's hold on a second. The, when you allow children, for example, to be put in cages and raped and uh, uncared for, uh, and, and no one does anything or says anything about it because that is the system that has been put in place. Is that not actual violence? That is actual violence. Yeah. When you allow black folks to be shot simply because of the color of their skin, is that not actual violence? And because the system perpetuates it and no one gets convicted, et cetera, et cetera. We know the story now. Yeah, it's that's actual violence. Actual when you violence. allow Native Americans um, to be uh, like a missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, at, at the highest rates possible to be kidnapped, murdered, tortured, and put into prostitution um, on the reservations and other places, uh, cities like Portland and Minneapolis and others, is that not actual violence? If we remain silent and we know to do something about it, we are perpetuating the violence. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a nuanced conversation. Mm. Okay. And which is hard, hard to have a conversation like that in these times, but, uh, but we've got to remember um, to, to continually make ourselves aware and educate ourselves and others as to what's really happening and, you know, doing the actual violence and perpetuating the violence by our inactions, there's a relationship there. Defining exactly what that is, I think that's what we're talking about. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. I just, uh, I know that silence is complicit in a violent system, and I, I get, I really get that. I, and maybe I just need to think about how to say my concern better, and maybe I just need a better example, but it seems to me it's disproportionate if I'm yelling and someone punches me in the face, that is not proportional. So if That's you right. say yelling is violence, you raised your voice and you increased your volume and that was, that's a type of violence, but that's, that's a different, it's not the same as punching me in the face. Right. No, you're right about that. Okay. I just need to, I need to work this out. So thank you. I just, because I, um, you know, live in between these two different camps and I hear how they're using the word differently. Uh, there is something making me very uncomfortable that uh, when graffiti is called violence, and then if that's a permission to retaliation with physical violence, I think, I'm not sure we have this equation right. Yeah. Hey, I don't want us to leave this program without noting that uh, the world lost two great civil rights leaders. Uh, yeah. The uh, C.T. Vivian and, uh, of course, John Lewis, um, both uh, passed this week. And I, we just need to remember those icons and the sacrifices they've made. We, we all stand on the shoulders of other folks uh, greater than ourselves that got us to this point. And you know, let them just be a reminder to us of that. Yeah. It's a really good note to end on. Listener, thank you for uh, joining us in this. We would love your feedback. You can comment on Facebook. You can comment on our show page. You can comment in the show notes below, piecingitalltogether.com. You can email us, connecting at piecingitalltogether.com. And we really thank our new Patreon supporters uh, for joining us and financially supporting us. We want to say thank you for that. So, and, and happy birthday, Randy. Thank you. So I'll, I'll, I'll end this with peace in and peace out. <laughs> peace throughout. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>